Welcome back to the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, Addis JV3. And unless you've been living under a rock somewhere, we have an election coming up, a very important election that will help to shape the next four years of our lives. And so before we even get into the episode, I want you all to go vote. However, you have to do that. That's in person. That's through ballot. I don't care. I know you're getting the text messages from numbers that you've never seen before. Please exercise your right to vote. And so today we are talking to someone who is advocating for that opportunity to vote and really amplifying the voices and the efforts of others who are trying to find themselves in the political arena. When you think about what it takes to be a politician, well, at least when I think about it, it doesn't require much. But when you think about someone who's actually going to be a servant for the people, there's a reason why a certain look comes to mind. And our special guest today is actually working to bring to light social workers as potential political candidates because of their experience with community and their experience navigating various resources and systems. And so I'm excited to introduce you all today to Jabri Harris, our guest speaker. Jabri, you mind introducing yourself to the folks listening? Hey folks, how's it going? I'm super excited to be in this space. Before we get started, uh, James, I want to say thank you uh, for cultivating and creating this space because number one, we don't talk about equity enough in all lenses and all the all realms of what equity actually is and live in every space. Um, so thank you for creating this space and allowing folks like myself to come on and uh, rap a little bit, I guess. Um, so uh, a little bit about me. I was born in Muskegon, Michigan, which is a small lake town uh, on the west side of the state of Michigan. Everyone is either from Arkansas, Alabama. It's one of those migration towns. Uh, and then uh, around second grade, we moved to Metro Detroit, where I spent most of my life. Um, like uh, everyone, like everyone else who lived in Detroit, uh, desperately trying to find a uh, space to go to for good schooling, just so we can get that opportunity. Uh, my mom, we lived, moved to suburbs of Redford from St. Clair Shores, Lakeview High School. Uh, it was quite the experience. <laughs> uh, but from there, I went to Eastern Michigan University where I got my BSW. Uh, and then from there, I went to Howard University where I got my MSW. Uh, now I'm currently wearing many different hats. I'm the legislative director for the 18th uh, House District, uh, working for Representative Kevin Hertel. And then furthermore, I'm the deputy field director for uh, Detroit Action, which is a community action group um, where we do a lot of policy and political-based work uh, in the city of Detroit. Uh, but also during this pandemic, I uh, created the Core Values Pack, which is a pack that is dedicated to transforming policy by empowering social workers to run for office. Um, and Everything, all of my experiences has really brought me to this point uh, from my internships, from my education, from my life experiences, uh, from my work in the political realm. Um, so, yeah, that's a little bit about me. I'm super excited to be chatting with you today. Glad to have you. So I have to ask you the same question I, I asked the last Howard Bison graduate. Um, is Howard the real H.U.? Well, we were an institution first, so I think that kind of answers itself. We've never, be, we've never been anything but HU. <laughs> so I guess in short, yes. 
I'm going to have to find a Hampton graduate to interview because at this point, someone's going to call me out and say that I only interview Howard alumni. Um, so if there's any Hampton pirates out there who want to get on the podcast, please hit me up. Well, it's a good bias to have. <laughs> <laughs> so for the people who are not in, informed in this way, what is a PAC exactly? A PAC is a political action committee. Um, there's a lot of disinformation that's about PACs. You know, a lot of people, when they think PAC, they think of the big, uh, balled out corporations that's really just paying for elections. But it's really a caveat uh, to amplify and highlight uh, good candidates. And that's why, that's where we use the, our PAC as we want to highlight and amplify, amplify the voices across the country of social workers running for local and statewide office. So that, yeah, that's where a little bit, that's a PAC. In, in in short. So what led you to creating a political action committee, right? So you mentioned wanting to highlight social workers and encouraging social workers to get into the policy space. You know, what, what pushed you to this moment? So um, at Howard, uh, no, first, let me go back a little bit. Uh, at Eastern, I, for my BSW, we have to, we have to work for free as social workers to get a degree, um, exactly. as you are, as you already know. Uh, I was I was blessed enough to get a master level internship in a school where I interned uh, at a charter school in Michigan. Uh, um, I saw myself a part of a system that was not really benefiting or helping the community that the way I wanted to. Um, and when I first started, I had no interest really in the policy side of things. I was a young coach, and I was I was more so interested in making sure I became a school social worker so I can coach uh, for the rest of my life uh, at the high school level. Um, but, you know, I guess God has a way of working things out. Um, I'll, but from that experience in internship, I saw myself doing these evaluations of kids that look like me and going back to reporting to uh, predominantly white women who just weren't culturally competent around uh, these evaluations, really. Um, and seeing the fact that I was really shuffling kids into special ed that really just didn't need it, that needed a little bit more individual attention, or they're just being seven-year-olds. I was in an elementary school. But furthermore, I was uh, the, the McKinney-Vento liaison for the district, where I got to see firsthand the, the inter how the intersectionality between housing and education, and how we have so many homeless students in our schools, and yet we still expect them to perform academically at the top of their level. And unfortunately, that feels like the common theme, where despite what may be happening outside of the schoolhouse, we just expect children to adapt and to perform. It brings to mind parallels of healthcare, where regardless of what's happening in one's home or in their environment, we expect them to be healthy. And so naturally, I can see how you could leverage social workers as a resource in this, this way. I think Healthcare has actually started to have more of those conversations and those dialogues. But in the way that you're framing it, it sounds almost like using social work as a conduit to community and actually positioning them for uh, more of a political role because of that firsthand experience. And so tell us some more about the PAC and kind of how you got it off the ground. Founding uh, the, the PAC, Core Values PAC, I wanted to state, start by saying all politics are local. Um, but furthermore, social workers have the perfect skill set and perspective to govern. Uh, every, you know, every four years, we get in this conversation about how 
politics needs to be have a revolution. We need a political revolution. Uh, and I truly believe we do need a political revolution, but we need more of an evolution than revolution. We need to transform the landscape of politics by empowering the right people to run for office. Uh, when I thought about how we can truly evolve the political landscape, uh, and not just not just in theory, not just from a conversation, uh, the PAC came into mind. Now, realistically, when we think about the social work process, you know, we think about implementation. So to really implement all these utopic conversations that we're having in our classes, uh, what's our next step? Is start to start a PAC because one of the biggest things and the hardest things to do is number one, find a good candidate. And number two, when you become a candidate, the next step is fundraising, uh, building out your teams, amplifying your message. Um, and that's really hard to do if you don't, if you don't know where, like, where to start. So we, to, I started the pack so we could be that at home. And, you know, and really to promote folks, folks from the social work profession to do this kind of work. You know, it was really interesting. I reflect on like growing up, my parents were very much of the belief that, you know, you didn't talk about politics. It was very much like who you voted for was very private. And I took that into my own adulthood. It was like when, like even my wife asked me like, who, who should we vote for? Like, huh, you know, that's- You keep that to yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's, that's my <laughs> business. You find your own candidate. You know, how do we, tear down and dismantle that stigma and make it more of a, a transparent process for folks? By doing what we're doing now, having conversations about it, it's going to continuously be a stigma. It's always going to be a hot button issue until we start talking about it. Uh, talking about politics, uh, was it religion, politics, and, and money are the taboo things to bring up in a conversation. But reality in most my circles, we're talking about uh, religion and we're talking about politics and, and it becomes a fluent conversation. And then it becomes a, a space where I'm comfortable asking questions or comfortable saying, I just don't know about this space. Um, so until we start having those conversations openly and organically and, and truthfully, um, we're gonna be in the same boat. Like we look at the 2016 election, the posters are calling, no one wanted to say that they were supporting Trump but you know we wake up on we wake up november 4th with an orange president <laughs> sorry because how like how can you you gotta you gotta respond to that you know you're in that process you're like are we living in the real world right now is the you fired guy really the president i still think about that every day that <laughs> we might actually be in a black mirror episode <laughs> exactly exactly so let's talk about your PAC some more. Let's, what are some of the goals that you have aside from amplifying you know, local candidates who happen to be social workers? What are other things that you're looking to see? So really at Core Values, we have uh, both philosophical goals and both tangible goals. Um, no, philosophically, we wanna transform the nature of politics, uh, making it more accessible to the everyday person, uh, making running for office more accessible to the everyday person. Uh, and making compassion uh, the bare minimum. Not, you know, when we see someone who has compassion, especially in pol for politicians, it's like a surprising attribute. When the reality, compassion should just be a bare minimum to run for office. But tangibly, we have a huge goal going into 2021, where uh, the, the, biggest, the biggest lift that we do at Core Values Pack, we recruit and we look for the next generation of folks to lead 
of the field of political social work to lead into the in, in the realm of governing. Uh, so what we're doing this year, we want to recruit 30 candidates to run for local and statewide office in 2021. Uh, and then just continue to build the community amongst political social workers. It's an emerging field and folks just simply don't know what we do just yet, but sooner rather than later, we're going to be out here uh, governing and making laws and making policies. Currently right now, uh, there are only seven uh, folks who are so who are trained social workers, not the, not the ones that say they are social workers, but the ones who actually have a degree in social work who serve in both the House and Senate. But there's a litany of those folks who serve throughout the country in local office. And I'm will, I don't have the, the data in front of me, but I'm willing to bet this, the, the bodies of government with social workers are present. There is more equity work being done. There's more perspectives being invited to the table. There's more, um, there's, a broad, there's a broader overall perspective on how to govern, how to get to people. The thing about equity is it's both process and outcome. And so when we're talking about it as a process, we're talking about how we have to remove the barriers that prevent individuals from participating in whatever the system happens to be. And in that same vein, we have to talk about diversity and we have to talk about really the lack of diversity when it comes to social work as a profession. It's been one of my greatest critiques that is predominantly white and is predominantly female. And I see similarities when it comes to politics, uh, predominantly white and predominantly male. And so trying to enter into that space, what, what is that even like? And so as you're talking about social workers becoming a part of the political arena, I'm particularly curious to some of the challenges and barriers that present themselves there. Obviously, we could be talking about capital because you need money to run for an election. And for whatever reason, people believe that social workers don't make money. But I would love to know what are some of the other common obstacles that people encounter as they're starting to hit the campaign trail. Yeah, so I started thinking about my experiences um, when, you, when you bring that up. I interned in grad school at the Congressional Research Institute of Social Work and Policy. Uh, shout out to Dr. Charles Lewis, um, Titan in, in the field. Uh, so there is where I got a first taste really of what being a political social worker is and what the world of politics and policy is. Because politics is different than policy. You know, I always explain when you think about policy, you think about jazz. Um, you know, because everyone's going to have their solo, but when it comes together, it's going to make a, a no lovely sound. Um, but one of the biggest hurdles is after, you know, you can find a ton of, of, of political schools or like policy schools or schools to do go to like learn how to be a candidate X, Y, and Z. But the next step of starting, of filing your campaign with the FEC or filing your campaign with your state election uh, board or, or creating creating capacity around organizing, creating a digital plan, creating messaging, things of that nature that you think comes innate uh, or you think just comes naturally to you, it is, it's tough to do by yourself. Like understanding and how to build an org, it's basically building an organization. Uh, a lot of work that we do with social work is organizational support, organizational building, but it's, uh, it's this organization here has so many different caveats and loopholes and back doors that you some it's just hard to if you don't have any guidance 
to do by yourself. I'm not saying it can't be done, but because it happens every single day, but uh, it's, it's tough to do by yourself, especially if you're working full time or if you're working multiple jobs or if you don't have the if you don't have the privilege to take off work to go do some canvassing for yourself. And I also want to talk about um, diversity here, because one of my biggest criticisms of social work as a field, you know, we're predominantly white, we're predominantly female. You know, how does diversity show up in in this microcosm of social work and politics? Because you think of politics, they're predominantly white, predominantly male. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I Usually being a large masculine black man walking into a room, uh, especially in the world of politics, is rare. There's not many people that look like me across the table from me or in the rooms I'm in. Uh, so yeah, we can start definitely start there. But, but, but I want to go back to the social work is, is browner and younger than ever before. Uh, like I said, this pack is that action step uh, for those utopic conversations we have in class. And I, I know you've been a part of them before. You're working on your PhD. You know, you, in class, we have all these great policy ideals, positions, X, Y, and Z. We, we're going on and on and on. And we're just laying it on heavy. Uh, but at some point in time, we have to move from theory to practicality. And so when I think of the PAC, uh, this, this is the action step to those discussions. Uh, to me, like diversity, equity, inclusion is the key to getting the right people at the table. And what we often see, and what, especially what we're seeing right now, is when the people hit the streets, it's going to force the people to come to the table. But when what we saw first, we saw this firsthand with Breonna Taylor. We see it firsthand happening right now with George Floyd. We see it firsthand happening right now with Elijah McClain, or or even even on policy points like voting, housing, uh, our COVID relief right now. We see firsthand if you get the wrong people at the table, no matter what, when they come to the table, the outcomes will always be negative. They won't be the outcomes that the community wants. As you see that firsthand, and, and this is not enough. There's just not enough people who look like me making decisions for people that look like me, or just the impact that it has, like impact that local policy has on my life. It will be is significantly different when there's a person with a broader perspective or some form of cultural competency around what is it like to be a black man in America today at the table. Those conversations are just different. Um, but what we did as a pack to make sure that we ensure that diversity, equity, and inclusion is going forward and is in the forefront, especially when we start thinking about uh, politics, not just as the candidate, but the teams that's built around them. Uh, when you go back and you start looking at teams that are all around black candidates, most times that, that team doesn't reflect who the candidate is. It may reflect him uh, policy-wise or policy ideal-wise, or work ethic wise, but definitely not looking the same. Um, so we as a PAC, we made a commitment to put always putting out our slate of endorsements will always be 80% people of color, 70% women, and 50% LGBTQIA. So unless you are being intentional about the work that you're doing and explicitly being intentional, nothing will change it will be always be the norm or the taboo or the popular thing to do when it's just the right thing to do. It feels like every election cycle, we experience this, this is the vote of a lifetime type situation. And so I really want to know from your perspective, 
why is this so important right now? And I have a, a unique lens to the situation as recently in my like nine to five job, I've taken on a role around voting safe and what it's like to vote during a pandemic and how you can do it safely. And part of the research that I've done to get prepared for that role is really understanding that communities that are more likely to vote are actually healthier. And so I'd love for you to bridge the idea of the importance of this current election cycle with the health of our communities. If you are in a position to where you can decide from which uh, Trader Joe's or Whole Foods to go eat at, uh, you are usually in a position to read a newspaper. You're in a position to actually see how taxes are impacting you on a day to day. Um, I always, I always go back to relative power theory when we think about voting and disparities in voting. If you don't have the time or the power to really go and be civically engaged, which is a privilege, if you're working two, three jobs, um, you're not going to make a city council meeting. You're not going to make a county council meeting. You're not going to be on the. You're not going to be on your board that regulates police officers in your city. Um, you just don't have the time. So that's why you when you see these communities that has more privilege and usually more privilege equates to better health or better health outcomes because you have the ability to go to the doctor, regulate things of that nature. This is so important right now because of Breonna Taylor, because Elijah McClain and the long list of people killed, uh, brutalized and terrorized by police, the 200,000, not 2,000, 200,000 plus people who won't be able to vote this year because they're killed by the lack of a federal response to COVID. Unemployment and rent are cousins because they're <laughs> both so high. Not going to college is still, to, the, to a certain, to a former degree, uh, especially for black and brown folks, is a death sentence, meaning that when you're 45 years old and your skills run out, your physical skill run out, um, you're, you're pretty much left high and dry. Or even when you do go to college, you're left in a, you're left in a sea of debt. Um, women's rights, quite frankly, you know, we have the nomination of a, a faux justice who really is just there to get rid of the rights of the women across our country. Right now, we are literally in not just a global pandemic physically, but also mentally and spiritually where we are having, we're, we're literally having a conversation on, we have a sitting president intimidating folks to go vote. That's why it's important. Because when, it's, when folks are working that hard to make sure that you, your voice isn't heard, that means that your voice must have a lot, a lot of weight behind it. It's so important right now, not just for yourself. When I, look, when I think of voting, Voting is an act of faith, and I'm a religious man, and faith without works is, de is dead. Whoever you put in office, is that you, that's you saying, I have faith that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. But the work that goes into that, that casting that ballot is making sure you hold them accountable, making sure that you send the right people to Congress so to pass a le uh, legislative agenda, making sure that you are checking them yourself. If you said that you're going to put... $10 million into HBCUs, why haven't you done that? And then when it, when it, comes, back, it comes back around and they didn't do what they said they're gonna do, look at your report card and go vote accordingly. So that, that's why to me it's the, so important right now uh, simply because it's bigger than ourselves. It's for the kids I don't have now, it's for my nephews who can't vote for themselves. 
is for the folks who don't have the ability to go and take a deep dive on policy positions. It, it's, it's just so important because it impacts everything that we do. Your local office, your, your mayors, your city council impacts everything that you do on a day-to-day. -day. Your county commission impacts the way that your city is being built, the businesses that are coming in, the, act, the way that you access healthcare. Your school board is deciding whether your kids are going back to school in a global pandemic or not, or if they're going to shovel out resources to make sure they're equ equitably uh, educated simply because if they have Wi-Fi or access to it, technology at home. So every vote matters simply because of that, because so much is always on the line. We hear every, every year like, oh, this is, the, this is the vote of a lifetime, but we, this is truly truly a, the vote of a lifetime simply because so much is at stake i know that you've mentioned your faith and spirituality is something that you use to kind of balance the burden if you will but there's always these ongoing challenges especially being a black man and as you describe being a black man in politics there are gaps when it comes to diversity there's gaps when it comes to equity and understanding of its application. And I know that for myself, that can be relatively frustrating because you can see the solution right in front of you, yet people give you either excuses or they don't believe in the process. So I'm, I'm curious how you are practicing self-care in that space. Before I say this, I do, gotta, I do gotta give a shout out to Dr. Jay Miller at the University of Kentucky who is doing some phenomenal work, him and his team there. Um, there it's called the, the Self-Care Lab. Um, and they are putting out some mind-boggling revolutionary work around self-care. Um, so I, before I start talking about my self-care routine, I do gotta pay homage to uh, one of the best out there that's doing it. Uh, so, but yeah, really to get over those obstacles, sometimes you gotta unplug. It's okay to watch an episode of The Office or two. It's okay to let that let that assignment be turned in in the morning. Uh, it's so it's 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 okay knowing that you can't do everything, and it's okay that some days that you won't do everything. Um, you know, for me, I, I just kick back for an hour maybe and play some 2K <laughs> like a normal person, or <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and just try to unwind and, and get myself away from some of the heaviness, some of the heavy stuff. Um, I do also punish myself by reading a lot of those heavy books, you know, uh, those James Baldwin style, like heavy, daunting, like, where, where is the world going kind of books. But, uh, you know, so I, I just like to kick back and do some mind numbing stuff. So I know you're balancing your role with the PAC, with the House, with the Detroit Action Commonwealth. Does it ever feel like a lot or overwhelming? The first three weeks of me doing the pack stuff on top of everything else that I do, I'm, I literally turn to my partner, I tell her, I say, I don't know if I made the right decision because this is a lot of work. I'm, I'm doing a lot, a lot. And uh, so I had to give myself a routine to, you know, take my mind off of things so I can be refreshed and be energized when I come back at it and get, really give it my all. Because if, you, if you're like going 50%, or if you're at 50% trying to give 100, it, that, it, the work becomes, the outcomes become horrible. So Jabri, how do people keep up with you, with the pack? Because 
of course, there's going to be questions. This is not the last election. There's going to be others. How do people stay informed with what you're doing and just how they can be more informed as a voter? So more informed as a voter, I do encourage everyone to get as much, as put their hands on as much lit as they possibly can. When I say lit, I mean literature from candidates, campaigns, do your research, make sure you look up your ballot and look up who's running against each other. Don't just look at a party, look at the quality of person, look at what they're, what they're doing, what they plan to do for you. Um, so wait, the best way to get in touch with me, I, I'm trying to be more active on Twitter. Uh, so you can look me up at Lily at Jabri Harris. Uh, I know it's a difficult name. Jabri, J-A-B-R-E-E, Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S. For the Core Values Pack, you can just go to corevaluespack.org um, and you will have a litany of everything that we have from the over 30 endorsed candidates that we have um, from across the country. Uh, and then furthermore, you know, get connected with the Core Values Pack um, on Twitter, on Instagram, we're all over. Jabri, thank you so much for your time and expertise today and really taking the time to dig into this election cycle. I think we as a community need to do a better job of having these kind of conversations. And I'm glad you mentioned that as one of the potential solutions for addressing the challenge. As I described before, my parents didn't talk about voting. I mean, I didn't learn how to vote, if you will. I knew that my mom was very much a Democrat. And my dad was very much not. And so being able to understand that as a process in the same way that we talk about creating generational wealth and leaving a legacy for our children, I'm glad that we're starting to have more of these open dialogues when it comes to the election process, when it comes to voting and really encouraging people to get out there and exercise their democratic right. Well, it's time to end that vicious cycle. I know you got boys of your own. You can start talking to them about voting. And it just starts at home. At the end of the day, like everything else, it starts at home. I'm excited for what you have to come with the Core Values Pack. I'm excited for the work that you're doing as a social worker, uplifting others. And so I'm wishing you continued success in that. But thanks a lot for having me on. And I really appreciate everything you're doing. Uh, and I, I, I hope that everything is, continues to be great. Thank you. And there you have it, folks. I'd like to give thanks to Jabri again for taking the time to talk to us about the core values pack, about his vision for social workers being more engaged in the political arena and how we can have a more equitable future. And I'd like to also remind you all that we do have an election coming up if it has not been made clear just yet. Please get out and vote. It is imperative that you exercise your rights. Also, as you're listening, make sure that you follow us on Instagram. That's Equity Matters Podcast. Um, if you've got any thoughts on future speakers or ways that we could continue to be more engaging, please reach out to us there. I'm excited for what we have to come. We have more speakers. We have a few panels coming up, which I'm really excited to moderate and get out to you all. And also just continue to support. As I've mentioned in times prior, it's just refreshing to see how many people are engaged in this equity conversation who are given energy when they hear the episodes and who reach out. So thank you for sharing. Thank you for listening. 
And thank you for doing what you have to do to make sure that people know that equity matters.